This is Hints and Guesses, my podcast with Kent Dobson. Here's the title for today. Salvation, Co-Creation, and the Feminine Imagination. That's what I want to talk about. And it seems like, to me, we need a sophisticated, ongoing, uh, intense, complex, and serious conversation about the masculine and the feminine, the yin and the yang. Sometimes what I call the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine. In fact, I did a couple of talks with those titles at C3, where I teach here in West Michigan. Check it out online, C3, West Michigan's inclusive spiritual community. I did one on Father's Day and one on Mother's Day. So this has been on my mind. And of course, almost everywhere you turn right now in our culture, there is you see a desperate need for a more intelligent, nuanced, life-giving conversation about what is masculinity and what is femininity, not to mention conversations about gender, which might be a little different in my mind, uh, male and female. And I don't want to get into exactly what I mean by the, the differences now, because I think maybe it's worth saying, when I say masculine and feminine, I mean the archetypal principle. And to use Jungian terminology, I mean the anima and the animus, uh, in part I mean that, which is which are these the inner dimensions of the masculine and the feminine, which all people carry and contain. And to live an unintegrated life is to not know very much about your own inner masculine and your own inner feminine, both of them, doesn't matter what your gender is. So that's kind of a psychological bent, and that's not actually... Uh, what I want to go toward today, I want to talk about the feminine imagination when it comes to a better world. And I'm doing this today, a Tuesday, I think it's Tuesday, yes, Tuesday, the day where the United States women's soccer team will play in the semifinal match against England. God, it's going to be a game. I cannot wait. I love soccer. I love soccer. I played soccer in college. My dad is from uh, Northern Ireland. And so I grew up as soccer being a kind of religion in our house. A more fun one than Baptist fundamentalism, but nevertheless, uh, a religion. And and it's interesting because our, uh, growing up, um, girls played soccer, but there wasn't much of, uh, in terms of culturally, there wasn't a lot of room for for women's professional soccer, although there was such a thing. It just didn't make it onto the national scene. And without question, the U.S. national women's team has changed the conversation about women in sports globally. Not single-handedly, but definitely have had a huge influence on, um, on sports and on equality, and on conversations about equality and equal pay. And one of the reasons, you know, we live in a performance-oriented world, and the fact that the U.S. soccer team, the women's team, is so freaking good, it, it's, it's like we cannot dismiss all of the political and cultural conversations that they are continually bringing up around equality. And um, how to treat women in our culture and in our society, and and at times even fighting for uh, equal rights and equal pay um, and LGBTQ inclusion, and, um, <laughs> and it's you know you think about Trump, he's all about the winners. You know the winners are the ones that get to say something. Well, uh, sadly, that's um, and I guess I mean, sadly, I, I'm not against competition. I'm not. Uh, but the fact that they're so freaking good uh, lends credence to their voice in a, in a way. And um, and I don't know if you saw the little spat last week between Rapina, the forward for the U.S. Uh, women's team, and Trump. She said, I'm not going to the effing White House if we win. And then Trump got involved disrespecting the country and the flag and all this kind of stuff, which is hilarious because he can be baited so easily. Um, and But to me, at least, it only highlighted the, the definite reality that we need an ongoing conversation about the masculine and the feminine. And 
Um, and so that's kind of what I want to want to try to speak to today. And I don't know, you might think to yourself, what 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 right do you have as a man to to begin talking about the feminine? And I and I don't know, good point, I would say, but if I'm not willing to do it, it just goes into the basement. And and I think that's um, I mean, the basement of the psyche. In other words, I'd rather try to have a conversation about it and be wrong, which I'm totally willing to be, but at least bring it up. What do we mean? And um, and and the other thing I, I think I, I want to mention, and maybe I'll come back to this in a bit, is that one of the things that the U.S. women's team seems to represent culturally is that they're not just fighting for their individual rights. Like, um, I want to be paid more because you know, men get paid more than I, than I do as soccer players. No, they're fighting for a changing cultural landscape. That's the worthwhile and long-term fight that they're in, regardless of whether or not you agree with all of the tactics and the nuances of the debates. They're about cultural change, it seems to be. And they're almost collectively about it. Even they're often standing together on, on certain issues, which is incredible in the first place. So, um, to say it more simply, they're fighting for collective change and for a better world. And that's the kind of thing I want to talk about today. I want to start with the Bible because, I don't know, I, I guess from time to time I just have to be honest that that's my area of expertise. If I'm as much of an expert as I, uh, as I am, um, for better or worse, the Bible is what I was raised in and formerly trained in. And I think the Bible is a very important book when it comes to this conversation. And in fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to with a group of people and I brought up the Bible, something the Bible said, and they said, well, how can you even take it seriously? It's a patriarchal document uh, meant to suppress the voice of women. And I thought, hmm, that's an interesting, um, that's, a, that's a broad sweeping statement you just made about not a book, but a collection of documents written over thousands of years covering um, uh, different cultures and even languages, uh, not to mention written by dozens of people and edited by many more people. It's kind of a broad sweeping statement. And I didn't, I don't 100% disagree. There, there are texts and phrases and verses that we would look at and say, yeah, that's meant to uh, suppress the, the voice and place of women in the given culture. And then other times it doesn't do that. It seems to take the opposite, um, more liberating path. And how can both of these things exist side by side? Well, that's just the beauty of the biblical text. It's complex. It reflects a complex culture that was evolving and changing over time. And it's okay to let the Bible be the Bible in all of its complexity. Let it speak out two sides of its mouth. Let it be uh, radically forward-thinking. No Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. Take care of the widow, the orphan, the poor, the alien. Love your neighbor as yourself, which is from Leviticus before it was from Jesus. Really old stuff. Um, don't mistreat the alien and the foreigner in your midst. Um, treat them kindly. You were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. This is radi radically forward-thinking uh, cultural uh, ideas, um, rooting morality in, in a cultural way of being that is progressive, we could say, and that at other times, uh, terribly small. And like Paul saying things like, um, I don't permit women to have authority over men. And we hear that and we think, um, we think like fundamentalists, like, oh, that, that I don't agree with, the whole thing is wrong, there's not a single bit of truth, and out the book goes out the window, which is terribly short-sighted. I think it's perfectly legitimate to, to look at the Bible critically and to say, I, I think I agree, I think I see what's here, and here I don't agree, and, and that's probably one of the things that makes, um, why I'm probably not going to get a lot of invitations to... Um, 
to talk about the Bible in uh, very conservative circles is because I will disagree with the Bible from time to time. I'll say, Paul, I see what you're trying to say here about I do not permit women to have authority over men, and I don't see it that way. I disagree. And if he were alive today, I would love to engage in a debate. I might lose. He seems like a radical, uh, he seems like a really sophisticated um, philosopher in a way. So I don't know how I would fare toe-to-toe in a debate, but I would disagree. I disagree, um, and in part because I don't hold the same worldview out of which these phrases um, were born and these passages were born and these stories were born. We don't have the same worldview, and we cannot go back. Um, I do believe in in something like the evolution of consciousness and um, an unfolding and ongoing narrative. Not that it's always going you know, to greater and greater... Um, goodness. We take enormous steps backwards culturally and sometimes personally in our way of thinking and being. Um, so I don't, I'm not a total optimist when it comes to that, but I do believe that uh, cultures change over time and we end up disagreeing with our forefathers. Um, slavery being such a fantastic and obvious example of that, the Bible does not condemn slavery and neither did um, uh, most of our founding so-called fathers, and yet I profoundly disagree with owning a human being, and and I'm not going to go back, and I'm not going to justify uh, the worldview in a way. I'm going to say I just disagree. It was short-sighted. It was um, it was too small minded It was too tribal and um, and too ethnocentric around um, white males. <laughs> All that I would say is true. So anyway, I'm I'm getting a bit sidetracked. Um, What's my point? My point is the Bible is complex and nuanced. However, let's ask some questions about really, really, do these stories give us hints and clues about the masculine and the feminine, especially when it comes to co-creating a better world? And I want to say from the beginning, I believe it does. And I think some of the most obvious and direct stories from our heritage need to apply apply intense pressure on who we think we are in the world. In other words, I don't think we should run away from the Bible because it's old and all that kind of stuff, but I think because it forms part of the spine of our own collective consciousness, we need to let it put pressure on it. I'll give you a kind of side example, which keeps coming up in the news. How are we treating the aliens? That's technically what what they're called foreigners, immigrants, we might say, who come across the border, who find ourselves in, who find themselves in our country, whether it's by legal or illegal or or no choice of their own in case uh, you're a child. See, the biblical narrative speaks to this directly, saying, what kind of culture do you want? Do you want a culture that oppresses foreigners or not? Because you were a foreigner at one time. And the, sort of the moral arc says, do not oppress the alien, the foreigner. You can still have laws. That's not even what we're talking about. We're talking about oppression. We're talking about causing unnecessary suffering toward the alien and the foreigner. See, the Bible is the very thing that can put pressure on the culture and should be putting pressure on the culture um, because so much of it is formed in this sort of Judeo-Christian milieu. So let it have its say. And that's kind of the way I want to talk about the issue to or the the questions today, salvation, co-creation, and the feminine imagination. I want to suggest something, that the feminine imagination is an integrated and interwoven part of what the Bible means by salvation. It's not a male-oriented thing, sort of we need a uh, a strong man to come in and, and rescue us, okay? There are those themes, but they're balanced out by what I'm going to call the feminine imagination. That salvation itself is deeply interconnected with the feminine imagination and actual females from the Bible, uh, characters from the Bible. Without their participation and co-creation of the narrative itself, you wouldn't have a story. And the biggest example of this comes from Exodus, which is kind of where I want to camp out for a few minutes today. And let me say one more thing about um, imagination. First of all, I think there are differences between men and women. That's um, just to put my cards on the table. There are biological differences. There are physiological differences. There are uh, potentially, as as I'm 
as I'm sort of brushing against the the scientific um, literature that's coming out, that's popularized in the news. I don't mean I'm like reading um, <laughs> scientific journals, um, but there are brain differences, and there are differences in the way uh, men and women seem to orient themselves toward the world that are rooted in evolutionary biology, and they 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 probably both serve a purpose. Um, and it's not about flattening everything out and trying to say that men and women are the same. And the same goes with a word like imagination, because um, I think there's a certain kind of imagination, feminine imagination for salvation, that's probably a little different than the masculine imagination for salvation. And let me just expand salvation, which I'm going to do more broadly in a second, toward um, uh, creating a better world, a better situation, being saved out of something and into uh a more generative world. The imagination of the masculine and the imagination of the feminine are different. Probably both are needed, but today's podcast is about the imagination of the feminine, rooted in the Exodus story here. And uh, yeah, so uh, hang hang with me. I think you'll find this really uh, interesting. First things first, a couple of comments about a word like salvation. Of course, in theology, you have something called soteriology. <laughs> I kind of, so, I think I said it right. Uh, this is the study of the theological study of salvation. I'm not too terribly interested in going down that path. Um, I, I just kind of want to make some broad statements about it. Most of the arguments around a word like salvation have to do with who's in the right group and who's in the wrong group, and the right group is the so-called saved group. And typically, in its most kind of a primitive form, the saved group is the group that gets to go to heaven, and the non-saved group is the one that gets to go to hell. And even if you don't believe in those as literal places, let's just take that as a kind of symbol, um, that kind of the saved group is the, the, the righteous one that's more in line with God, and the unsaved is the unrighteous group, and it's not in line with the ways of the divine, so to speak. So these are important, and I think, um, and probably never-ending th- theological uh, debates. And I want to, for a second, broaden, I think, our understanding of a word like salvation rooted in, I think, how the Bible actually imagines such a thing. So, like I said, the crass form where we're saved, the saved group gets to go to heaven is a big-time, underdeveloped, um, simplistic a narrow view of it. It's what my friend Brian McLaren calls evacuation theology, where you know, sort of the good guys get uh, sucked up to heaven and everyone else is kind of screwed down below and whatever ends up in hell. You've probably heard me you know, riff on this kind of stuff before, and I, I do in, in Bitten by a Camel in my, in my book. My point right now is that I think a better way to talk about a word like salvation is saved salvation unto something rather than from something. So it's not that, hey, you're in trouble and I'm going to pluck you away and get you out of trouble. That's not the image images we have in the Bible. That's not the stories we have in the Bible, especially the Exodus you'll see in a minute. It's, okay, there's a sense of being taken out of a certain situation, but for what purpose? Unto what? And in the Exodus story, you have an unworkable and oppressive uh, culture that is um, enslaving human beings. And the Jewish people, the Hebrew people they're really called at this time, are taken up out of Egypt. And they're rescued, they're saved in that sense from Egypt. But unto what? Well, straight away into the desert, into the vast plain of emptiness where they... um, they come to find out that human beings do not live on bread alone. That's a line from Deuteronomy. That's what the wanderings are about, that there's a there's a fundamental ground to reality that's even beneath um, uh, our survival mechanisms, and, they're, and they are fed by God in that sense, by nature itself, really, in the story. They eat this weird stuff that grows on the ground, but they don't have anything. They go through this, um, a great shedding. 
And then they're brought into the promised land, into a, a land. And they're not just they're not just said here. Here you go. Everything's going to be fine. They're said the uh, Moses and and the Ten Commandments and the leaders of the people say it's our responsibility to create or co-create a culture that doesn't turn around and cause the same level of suffering that we just left from. And therefore, you get that's where you get so many rules like love your neighbor as yourself and do not murder. And after all, the story of Exodus begins with murder, where the Pharaoh says to the midwives of Israel, kill the baby boys and they won't do it. So um, there's a kind of cultural cor- correction. So what am I saying? I'm saying our definition of salvation is much more healthy when we saved, saved unto what? plucked out of an oppressive situation, brought out of suffering in some way, unto what? Well, unto a more generative and life-giving world and culture. And only we, in the story, so to speak, can take responsibility for that. That's what I, I, I love the Jewish uh, Passover meal and the Seder. Because as part of the Seder, I participated in one when I was in Israel, uh, every single year, it's repeated, the Passover, the Seder. And during the liturgy, everyone in the room says, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. That's such an incredibly, uh, that's such an incredible phrase. It's not they were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. It says we. So first of all, I am now a participant in the story and I get to be a co-creator. Um, I get to experience the kind of salvation that's uh, symbolically uh, I- imagined in the story. And I'm a co-creator in the better world, in the unto, salvation unto what? And I get to become a participant and bear the responsibility of passing this thing on. And the kind of salvation that is in the Exodus story and really in much of the biblical narrative might better be called liberation, where they're liberated, and I would also say liberated unto, and hopefully not liberated and then later on become an oppressor yourself, which actually happens in the Bible. That's why the prophets rage against some of the kings of Israel that end up enslaving their own people, including Solomon, the so-called wise person, uh, one of David's sons, ends up enslaving his own people. And the prophets rail and rage and threaten and say, this cannot be. You were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. Why are you passing on this this kind of oppression? So cultural change and this kind of salvation is cyclical. That's kind of where I'm going with this. Salvation is saved unto, and it's cyclical, and it comes back around again. It's an ongoing and unfolding conversation that involves each generation. That's number one when it comes to salvation. Number two is that without question, the way the Bible talks about a better world is involves the participation or co-creation together with human beings. It's not divine intervention like we sometimes imagine it. I wish God would sweep in and fix the whole thing. No, it's a lot more convoluted and complex and roundabout way involving ordinary, um, messed up, and brilliant human beings. After all, How inefficient. If God wants to bring the Jewish people, Hebrew people, up out of slavery, how inefficient to go ahead and use a guy named Moses who can't speak, who kind of is afraid, he murders an Egyptian and runs away. Like, I can't think of a more roundabout way of going about liberating a people. Why not just like, you know, rain down fire and brimstone and then make signs in the desert with an arrow that says, promised land this way. Why do you need to go through such a, why do you need characters, human beings? Well, that's the beauty of the Bible. There's no such thing as salvation without human participation in the Bible. There's no such thing. Same with the Jesus narrative. Why go to all that trouble? Um, even if you're if you're a traditional sort of orthodox Christian and believe in the incarnation, how inefficient. Why become a human being? Why get involved in all this mess? And that is, I think, the most profound contribution that Christianity is making to spirituality globally. It's saying that the divine is in the ordinary. It's in the messy ordinariness of life. And it's inefficient. But it also means that human beings are the ones that that bear the responsibility and take up the cross, so to speak, of the act of liberation and salvation. Jesus only hangs out with his disciples for a little while and then leaves them and says, now it's up to you. It's up to the men and women to carry on this liberating kingdom. So 
like it or not, that's that's the way the the Bible unfolds things. So let's let's uh, look a little more carefully at the very beginning of the Exodus story, and then talk about the what I'm calling the feminine imagination here. So uh, I'm going to start in. This is uh, the first chapter in Exodus. A new king, then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing. The Joseph narrative is what closes the book of Genesis. Joseph is um, one of the sons of Jacob, ends up that the whole family moves down to Egypt, where Joseph is a ruler of some sort, works uh, with Pharaoh and for Pharaoh. But anyway, that generation dies off, and kind of the story of Joseph is lost. And the new king, the new Pharaoh, doesn't know about this story and and in a way doesn't know the the kind of friendship that the Hebrew people had for a time with Pharaoh. So a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to the people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. In other words, they won't be our slaves anymore. They'll rise up. They'll be a kind of slave rebellion, which is not uncommon in the ancient world. And actually, Egyptian sources, they don't, there aren't Egyptian sources that really talk about the Israelites, but they do talk about conflicts with slaves and other people groups in the land. So it was a real fear of the leadership. <clears throat> so they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. So it's kind of, I think, trying to give us a sense of time period here. But the more they were uh, oppressed, excuse me, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians became to dread, came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And in their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So things are really dark, culturally, and then just personally, if you're an ordinary Hebrew, what is, what is your life? You are owned by uh, the powers that be. You have no freedoms. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, now the story takes an interesting twist here. Suddenly, the feminine is brought into the narrative whose names were Shapira and uh, Pua. And I can't remember what those names mean. It's been a while since I've looked at the story in Hebrew. Um, it's probably worth looking up if you're interested in this, in this kind of thing. One just kind of uh, interesting aside is that the Pharaoh is not named. The writer of Exodus, maybe he's not naming Pharaoh because he wants the story to be um, more symbolic and timeless by taking us out of the kind of rooting it in someone specific like Ramses II or something like that. He just says, Pharaoh is kind of nameless, but here the writer, I think, cleverly names the midwives, which, which I think gives it a sense of personality. And again, is this a patriarchal document meant on suppressing the voice of women? Well, not so much, not in this particular case. Here, here the women are even named and bringing a kind of hero-like status to them because look what happens. Anyway, the, the Pharaoh says, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, which is really just says in, in Hebrew, if I remember it, two stones. So there was the delivery stool was just simply two stones, probably that the, that the women squatted on is the kind of cultural uh, background assumption there. If you see the baby as a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. And... I think just in a one simple line, you see how how quickly a culture um, that doesn't value human life and value the foreigner, the alien, um, the one working for you, how quickly that turns into forced labor. I own you, and how and the next step beyond that, you don't have the right to live. I get to decide um, who's worthy to to breathe. Um, the breath of life. And here Pharaoh says, I get to decide and says to the midwives, kill the boys. I'm not going to make 
too much of this right now, but this is the same story of Jesus uh, with Herod. Herod says, kill the boys. Herod is a Pharaoh figure, and Matthew is doing that intentionally. That's the, that story's in the book of Matthew. It's connecting the Moses narrative with the Jesus narrative. And what happens when cultural power is blinded by its own narcissism, its own self-interest, how quickly it turns to murder. The midwives, however, feared God. And very interesting, um, very rich Hebrew word here, to fear God. It's used dozens of times in dozens of different contexts. And actually, Abraham Heschel, the great Jewish philosopher, says probably a better way of understanding the fear of God here is to think about it in terms of awe or wonder, a sense of smallness, not a sense of tyrannical fear like... um, you know, like a father, I'm going to get out my belt type of fear and whip you. Actually, it's much more rooted in awe and wonder. And the context here is moral. <laughs> they're, they're, they're filled with the fear of God and did not do what the king of Egypt told them to do. Now, think about the courage that it took to defy the most powerful person on earth which is exactly what the Pharaoh probably was and definitely represents in the story. The most powerful political, economic, social, cultural, and popular figure in the world as they knew it. And they say, I will not do what you tell me. I am a midwife. And midwife was, by the way, one of the few professions that were, I I don't know, um, well, exclusively for women, but also honored. It was, it was... There weren't many professional options for women, and that's not just true of the Bible, that's true of the entire ancient Near East, but midwifery was one of them. It's, <laughs> you could even say it's the oldest profession on earth. I think there's probably, you can make a fair case for such a thing, and certainly noble, because without the midwife, without the safe passage of the next generation, you have no next generation. You are simply powerless. So... Um, the midwives here um, are the cultural heroes, and they have a kind of moral fortitude in their awe for um, the divine, as they understand it, that they're willing to take enormous risks. They're willing to risk their own life to, to defy the Pharaoh to his face. I'm not doing this. I'm not doing what you told me. I'm not doing what you want me to do in your own house. That is the kind of moral and creative imagination that these women have. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, and they're being sneaky and clever here. Uh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. (laughs) They're vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So not only... um, And maybe there's even some truth to this. Uh, I don't know. It seems like they're giving a line to Pharaoh here, but they're not taking the position of subservience, but one of defiance. And in 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 the name of the divine and in the name of defying the oppressor here and saying, even our women are stronger than your women and they give birth on their own before the midwives are ever there. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. So the little sort of clever plan of Pharaoh doesn't really work out. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people, Every Hebrew boy, boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. So he broadens the, the commandment. Um, of Pharaoh, Pharaoh broadens his own rule to in, to include the entire culture. Now you're going to do my dirty work for me if you see a boy throw it in the Nile, kill the boy, um, which is uh, what happens when whole cultures are possessed by a tyrant. It's one thing to have a tyrant; it's for another. It's another thing for the culture to participate in it. And don't think this is an old story. This is, um, or a biblical story. You know, this is um, true of every culture gone wrong, including during World War II, um, which is probably the most gross modern example of a culture gone mad. And 
ordinary people, uh, doctors and um, lawyers and mechanics and uh, tradespeople and so forth and so on, going along with the madness of tyrant caught up in, in the web. So, um, yeah, what can we say about the kind of salvation, and I think that's the right word, that's taking place here? It's one of extreme moral courage that's self-sacrificial and interested in creating a future. This is a whole generational notion in here that if our boys don't survive, our culture doesn't survive. And I'm willing to take enormous personal risks for the well-being of the community as a whole. That seems to be the feminine imagination. And just to be clear on the story, you would have no exodus story, period, without these two women being the first to stand up in the face of Pharaoh. It's not the men. Where are the men in this story? They're nowhere to be found. But the feminine imagination is the one that begins the salvation process of the Jewish people and co-creating potentially a, bench, uh, a better world. And that's not all, because the story goes on. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, and who's doing the hiding here? The women. She got a papyrus basket, and I'll comment on that in a second for him, and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Now Pharaoh's daughter. I mean, we're talking women, women, women. Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying. And she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies. She knows what's going on. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? <laughs> yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the, women, um, so the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him into Pharaoh's uh, daughter, and she became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Again, women, women, women. And it's the female imagination for the future that's not self-serving. That seems to be operative here. It's not narcissistic and short-sighted. I'm going to get my way. It's long-term, it's cultural, it's broad, and and it's amazing that um, both Moses' mother and Pharaoh's daughter have a larger imagination for humanity itself, including the Hebrew child, Moses, into the household of Pharaoh, defying um, all kinds of cultural taboos and certainly the direct commands of her own father. How does this come to be? Through what I'm calling the feminine imagination, which uh, is is um seems to be the 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 background of the entire story the thing that gets it going now a couple of other things that are some um <laughs> shockers if you don't know too much about the hebrew bible moses here is placed in what the my translation calls a papyrus basket it's um a teva in Hebrew is the, is the exact word. And really, it's the exact same word and only used one other place. It's the exact same word as used in the Noah story for the ark. It says, and, Mo, uh, Moses, and, excuse me, and Noah made an ark and brought his family in there and all of the animals and survived this cataclysmic flood, which is a recreation story. So to use that exact word is to draw on the Noah narrative. What's at stake here is not whether or not this baby will be saved, but the future of a new world, a new created order, if you want to look at it that way. Moses is placed in an ark, 
which symbolically represents this transformative and dangerous journey from a world of oppression and darkness um, and murder and violence to a world uh, that's uh, more life-giving, generative, and honoring of the ways of nature and the way of the divine. The, that's the, those are the big archetypal themes here. And so, of course, Moses is placed in an ark, is travels on the water, just as Noah did, which is saying this old world, in this case, the Egyptian world, is the one of, of darkness and oppression, and a new world is on the horizon. And it's the feminine imagination in the story that uh, envisions such a thing, that takes enormous risks to help co-create um, such, such a world. So let me just ask some questions. And I don't really have the answers to them. But I think they're worthwhile questions. The first is an observation, I guess. Uh, life is suffering. That's Buddhism 101. Life is suffering. And the Bible would agree with such a thing. It's coming from a similar worldview. We're mortal creatures. And, and part of our moral makeup means that we will make mistakes. And that things will not always work out. And that even bad things will happen to good good people. And um, good things happen to bad people. It's a morally ambiguous world. It's not so clean, and it's and there's a lot of suffering. But um, even though that's the case, it's possible to imagine a world where unnecessary suffering is decreased. And that's, the I think, the ongoing question in the entire biblical narrative. There's suffering, but then there's a lot of unnecessary suffering. Some of it is... Um, suffering that you cause through your own uh, short-sightedness, blindness, and, uh, I don't know, narcissism, what the Bible would call sin. Uh, and some of it is out of your own control and power by the powers that be, causing all kinds of unnecessary suffering in the world. And the Bible begins to ask questions like, what kind of world does God want? And, and when I say God, I mean it in the broadest possible sense of the word, the divine, the, 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 the great one, the, the mystery of reality. And to muse on that is to have the great conversation and have one of the greatest conversations that human beings have always had. What is the nature of reality? And, and what are these big patterns? What, and what is eternity? And so forth and so on. But to ask what kind of world might God want is, involves our uh, participation from a biblical point of view. It's to imagine what kind of world do I want? And, and what kind of world am I responsible for helping to create? And am I going to be the kind of person that causes less suffering in the world, or am I going to be the kind of person that is going to cause more suffering in the world? And another one is, okay, there's unnecessary suffering in the world. Am I going to stand up against the unnecessary suffering, even if it causes harm to myself and my family for the sake of a future world, or am I going to remain silent? And a silent participant in the darkness of oppression. These are these are the deeper questions of a story like Exodus. And I think we have to begin to ask questions like, what does the feminine imagination have to serve right now? What 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 role is the feminine imagination um, inviting us into culturally right now? I mean in the 21st century. Why do we have a women's soccer team that is so wildly successful and what kind of questions are they asking and why and why is this important now and what is it and here's i think the question i'm trying to ask what is it that they see about the way the world is that i don't as a man what do they know about what have they experienced uh in our culture that i haven't experienced as a man and why is that needed and and is there a particular way, an imaginative way of co-creating a better world that is particularly feminine that I'm out of touch with, that I don't know anything about, that I'm more used to masculine ways of, of uh, fixing the world? 
but maybe that's only one part of the equation and and it actually it's short-sighted and maybe it's gone terribly wrong and and maybe we're so blinded by sort of business as usual as the Egyptians were so blinded by business as usual after all they're an empire and I think you can draw direct parallels between the Egyptian Empire and the American Empire because they're empires or the Roman Empire for that matter any empire ends up being blind and self-interested what is it about the the feminine imagination that breaks that wide open that has the moral courage to say no I'm not going to the fucking White House even that's just one tiny example and you might say oh that's you know you might feel uncomfortable with that or or maybe you like that i i don't really know but my my question is what kind of moral imagination is behind that finding opportunities and places to stand for something larger than your own interest and to not hide i mean the the hebrew midwives are Without them, there'd be no story. There'd be no exodus. There'd be no salvation. There'd be no promised land. It starts with them. It starts with their own moral fortitude and courage and imagination for the future and not participating in, in oppression. And it starts um, with individual births. At the next one, if it's a boy, I'm going to pretend I didn't get there. That's what it comes down to. That's how small of a decision it is. Um, I mean, think about a, a Hebrew slave, a Hebrew woman giving birth in some kind of small room underneath the nose of the empire. This is, this is the birth of a child that nobody's supposed to know about. And here the midwife shows up and in an act of utter defiance says, I'm not following the law of the land and let's, let's the baby live. And what an incredibly courageous act to do. And that spills to another one and to another one and to another one feeding the future, so to speak, seeding the future. It's the midwife. And I think midwifery as an archetypal metaphor is um, at the very heart of this kind of salvation. Salvation in this sense, in the feminine imagination, is not um, by hacking away with a sword, okay? By, by blind and blunt force, but by a very subtle, participatory midwifing of something, a participant in the energy and the flow of life, a container of sorts, someone uh, that walks through a process um, that is, is present to the unfolding process of birth itself. Maybe that's the kind of salvation we need in our world right now, not blunt, brutal force but the kind of subtle midwifing of something, the art and science and beauty and presence of a midwife is what's needed to co-create a better world. So what does this tell me? This tells me that in some sense, I need to be a better listener and to listen to what's beneath the cultural critiques happening right now. And it tells me that I ought to be a better listener of individual stories. What's it like to, I don't know, be a soccer player uh, and a woman? What's it like to, um, whatever, you fill in the blank. What's it like to be a woman in our culture and in the world? And to begin to listen to those stories and to begin to ask questions like, what do you imagine a healthy future to be for yourself and for your kids? Um, for the next generation that I don't see? I mean, in, in the great Taoist sense, I mean, the masculine and the feminine are uh, like the yin and the yang. They're, they're um, swirling around one another. Both energies and forces are needed. And, and in the very center of the masculine yang there's a dot of the yin and in the very center of the feminine um, yin there's a dot of the yang so we know this like psychologically and psycho-spiritually and and as an image um, but it does require us i think to be much better listeners to come up alongside what is initially um, 
kind of a frightening force in and of itself for the masculine to come up alongside of the feminine and to be a better listener. What is it that you see about the world that I do not see about the world? What is it about the the kind of future that you are co-creating that I am not yet a participant in. That's the kind of thing that I think the Exodus narrative is luring us into. And it's surprising that it's in the freaking Bible. They get so much critique um, from the left that it's a patriarchal document bent on repression and on oppression. And I say, not so fast. Right in the heart of it is something else. And let's make one bridge to the world of Jesus. There is no story without Mary and this kind of co-creative, participatory, feminine imagination for the future. Joseph has no say in it, (laughs) literally has no say in it. He's not a big player in the story. It's, in a sense, the divine, the mystery of the divine acting in the world through the feminine imagination again. Now, how did we get to um, a a church culture so dominated by men? Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess that's part of the masculine darkness, Um, maybe because of our um, our, uh, physiological power that we have over women. We extend that to every category and and every institution, and we end up dominating like Pharaoh. How did we get there from a story that introduces the biggest themes you could think of, salvation, liberation, and a new world, through the feminine imagination? How do we get to such, um, uh, such a closed mind uh, institutionally? I do not know. But I think um, right now, maybe, I, I mean, I, as I'm going to be hyperbolic here. I'm going to sound like a good preacher for for a second, but some part of me also says there's some truth to this. Right now, we have an incredible opportunity that perhaps we've never had in the entire history, written history, human history, and especially in the history of Western culture. And that is an opportunity to have a more nuanced, rich, more life-giving, and humble conversation around the masculine and feminine. Looking for opportunities Uh, opportunities of equality, of voice, and opinion, and experience, and um, softening our ears and our gaze toward the other, maybe in both respects, the masculine toward the feminine, the feminine toward the masculine. Um, At least that's uh, maybe part of an alluring future that we can imagine. But my point is, right now, We have an incredible opportunity, um, maybe the first time in known history, (laughs) to have um, a more nuanced conversation. And the question is, are we going to take it up? And and, um, what's your small role in such a thing? Those are the questions that are rolling around in my mind. Let me just end with a statement. We can't have a better world, a more generative, life-giving world, one that is in a more healthy cooperation with nature, with Mother Earth, without this uh, principle of the sacred feminine and the way in which the sacred feminine imagines and acts as a midwife for the future. We can't do it. We can't do it without the sacred feminine entering the conversation. We're fooling ourselves if we don't open ourselves up to being challenged by um, the sacred feminine. That's what I got for you today.